as British broadcaster BBC is raided by the income tax authorities over several days in Delhi and Mumbai, government officials are pointing to an international conspiracy they fear is by colonial powers to defame India. Is Indian diplomacy on the defensive? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sahasini Heather. This is episode 96. And you might find this episode quite unusual as usually we try to deal with plain facts, things that have happened. Here we are trying to dissect official speculation that has now become a part of Indian diplomacy on an alleged foreign hand at work to run down India's development. So while in previous episodes we may have spoken about disaster diplomacy or diaspora diplomacy, neighborhood diplomacy, this week, we are going to focus on defensive diplomacy. And this is a big part of what the MEA, the Ministry of External Affairs, and Indian diplomats and embassies worldwide have to do. This is a big part of what they do, defending India against what they see as international attacks. So what exactly did happen? First, what we know, the BBC, Britain's public broadcaster that works under the government's Department of Media, but is an independent uh, organization aired a two-part documentary in January that raised questions about Prime Minister Narendra Modi's role as Chief Minister of Gujarat, virtually accusing him of being complicit in the killings of 2002 in the Gujarat riots. The second part of that documentary looked at the actions of the Modi government at the center now since 2019, accused it of instigating and also of condoning majoritarian violence. Neither parts of the documentary were actually made available by the BBC to viewers in India. They didn't appear on the BBC's World Service and in fact were not available on official channels over the internet. Even so, the government banned part one of the documentary. It didn't ban part two. And the Ministry of External Affairs issued a very strong statement accusing the BBC of a colonial mindset. Listen in to just what the spokesperson of the MEA said a few weeks ago. Let me just make it very clear. We think this is a, a propaganda piece uh, designed to push a particular discredited narrative. The bias, a lack of objectivity, and frankly, a continuing colonial mindset is blatantly visible. If anything, this film or documentary is a reflection on the agency and individuals that are peddling uh, this narrative again. It makes us wonder whether um, about the purpose of this exercise and the agenda behind it. And frankly, we do not wish to dignify such efforts. So strong words over there uh, saying that they don't want to actually dignify the documentary. Even so, on February 14th, a few weeks later, the government began a series of raids on BBC offices in Delhi and in Mumbai, income tax, uh, ED authorities, confiscating cell phones and computers, looking into the financial records of the BBC in India. No official has spoken on the record, but sources have alleged financial wrongdoing by the BBC, non-compliance, not actually transferring profits, and even a link, they said, to, to sponsorship of BBC programs by Chinese companies. There has been no formal response on the raids or the ban or the criticism from the British government either. Officials have just said that they are closely monitoring developments. Now, in the same vein, there was another big story. It was a report by an American financial research firm and short seller, Hindenburg uh, Research, who accused the Adani Group, one of India's biggest groups, Adani Enterprises Limited, of a number of share market manipulations, also false filings. 
The report was denied by AEL, but the company and its subsidiaries took a considerable hit on the stock exchanges, losing about $100 billion in value altogether. The company also claimed that that report was a hit job aimed at damaging India and its economy and not just AEL or any one company. A senior minister also slammed a statement by American investor George Soros, who had called for Prime Minister Modi to answer questions about his proximity to the Adani Group chief. Minister Smith Irani called Soros' speech a conspiracy to break Indian democracy. Now, you might wonder why we are discussing this on Worldview, but this is because this is what Indian diplomacy has actually been quite busy with. In fact, let's just listen in to what Vice President Jagdeep Dhankar said in response to what he called attacks on India's economy, as well as uh, in response to the BBC documentary. He was speaking to India's information service officers about the importance of defending India. Listen in. This is another way of invasion. We have to boldly neutralize it. We have to steal in us a spirit of nationalism. We cannot allow free fall of doctored narratives to run down our growth story on so-called reputations. How come Indian mind immediately absorbs something, doesn't analyze the vituperative campaign, vicious mechanism, potential designed to set afloat a narrative to run down the growth story of this country? All in the name of freedom of expression. Freedom of expression is valuable, inalienable. And no country in the world has respected it more than we have done in this country. Okay, so that's two examples in the recent past as well. The government has reacted to international reports that claim press freedoms in India. Democracy as a whole is under attack. And here's what the Indian permanent representative to the United Nations, Ruchira Kambod, said at a press conference in December. We don't need to be told what to do on democracy. India is perhaps the most ancient civilization in the world, as all of you know. In India, democracy had roots going back to 2,500 years. 2,500 years. We were always a democracy. And finally, uh, last month, when India came under criticism for increasing its imports of Russian oil, remember, India's imports have gone uh, virtually 30-fold. Uh, if you look at about 40,000 barrels per day that were, uh, that were imported at the beginning of 2022, up to about 1.27 million barrels per day, and Russia being one of the largest exporters to India. Of course, India has maintained that this is a part of what India's economy needs in terms of energy security. And External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar has been at the forefront of that defense, really, when uh, asked about these questions. He calls it Western hypocrisy. Here's what he said to a media organization, to the ORF in Austria in December. Europe has managed to reduce its imports while doing it in a manner in which it is comfortable for Europe. Now, if at 60,000 euros or whatever is your per capita income, you are so caring about your population. I have a population at $2,000. I also need energy. I don't have 
I'm not in a position to pay high prices. The price of oil has doubled. So, and what Europe is doing is also moving into the Middle East and diverting production out of the Middle East into Europe and raising prices. So European actions actually are putting pressure on the global oil markets and on my uh, imports as well. So uh, I think it's something which if European political leadership understandably would like to soften the impact on their population, I think it's a privilege they should extend to other political leaderships as well. Okay, so you're getting a bit of the picture about how the defensive diplomacy is really playing out. And in the past few years, you may recall, the Ministry of External Affairs actually reacted on many issues. They reacted to criticism from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on police action against protesters, whether it was the Citizenship Amendment Act or whether it was the farm protests that we saw. Uh, in fact, India froze bilateral ties with Canada for several months. No high-level meetings were held between the two countries uh, in protest. External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar also cancelled. Uh, he was supposed to take part in a meeting in Canada as well, and he cancelled that. Uh, the MEA also issued statements against people like pop star Rihanna uh, Glo uh, and, and uh, youth environmental activist Greta Thunberg when they criticized the government as well. So this has all become part of the Ministry of External Affairs' role on a day-to-day -day basis. So what really are the big worries for the MEA and for the government? Why are they going out to defend um, what they see uh, India against these attacks, if you like? Uh, one is, of course, there is the larger trend, the worry that this is part of a larger trend of criticism against India, particularly in the year of its presidency of the G20. And this is a prestigious event. India is hosting all these meetings across the year. They don't want to see a series of criticisms coming out. So when the BBC documentary came out, the two-part documentary came out right in the January, a month after India took over the G20, clearly the government was worried. The second worry is that it will dent India's image and make diplomacy much more difficult because this then becomes a part of the diplomatic talking points whether it is criticism uh, about the government's action or inaction against people responsible for violence, or whether it is clampdowns on press freedoms, on NGOs and others. The third reason is that uh, all this criticism could hurt India's economic growth. And you heard those concerns being made there. India is just recovering from COVID, Ukraine war, global recession, and uh, these attacks are taking a toll on the Indian economy as well. The fourth reason, and you heard uh, the MEA use uh, what would seem like an arcane term to use, particularly against the BBC in a country uh, where we've been uh, reporting on worldview about how big a moment it was that Rishi Sunak, person of African and Indian origin, actually became the prime minister there. Even so, those words from the MEA saying that this comes from a continuing colonial mindset uh, it leads to the worry really within the government that there could be, you know, some kind of racist attacks or slurs against India uh, and the Indian diaspora as a result of continuing criticism. And then there is the worry of the much more serious nature of international mechanisms being used, like the Human Rights Council, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, media bodies, democracy bodies, all of them doing global rankings of India and putting it lower, as well as actually sanctions against specific institutions and officials in India. Now, this seems like a stretch, but we have seen in countries like Iran, of course, uh, also Turkey, uh, Bangladesh, where uh, global bodies or unilateral sanctions from the US, the EU and other countries 
have come down very heavily on specific officials responsible, they say, for some kind of crackdown on democracy. So these are uh, extremely cogent worries. They have been fleshed out over the years by the government as a kind of part of a Western narrative of conspiracy, if you like. Um, but the truth is that while these worries are there, they're there for any country, particularly a country that is a developing country, since one always sees the Western world as a kind of the developed world as a kind of uh, almost consortium that uh, seeks to practice democracy in other countries as well. The fact is, if you look at the reality of India's diplomacy in the last few years and in the last week alone, it doesn't really back up any of these insecurities that the government seems to be projecting that could happen from an international, any kind of an international attack. Just take a look at the past week alone. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he held calls with US President Biden as well as French President Macron. There was a statement by British Prime Minister Sunak, very, very complimentary about the Air India decision to buy jets, to buy their planes from both the, the, from France and from the US, from those companies, Boeing, as well as Airbus, as well as the Rolls-Royce engines to go with them. Then you had National Security Advisor Ajit Doval, the, the virtual red carpet in Washington, where he held meetings on technology, uh, in the UK on strategic cooperation, and then to Moscow. So across world capitals, uh, the National Security Advisor was um, greeted many agreements on technological cooperation, as I said, strategic issues, Afghanistan, the G20 were all mentioned. There's External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar's visit to Australia and Fiji this week. There's the World Hindi Conference in Fiji as well, which you can read much more about at the Hindus website. Then there is towards the end of February, uh, there is the upcoming visit of German Chancellor Scholz, Olaf Scholz coming. And in the run-up to his visit to Delhi, there's the German National Security Advisor has been here. The climate change envoy uh, is visiting as well. And there is a lot of give and take uh, and a lot of bilateral diplomacy going on with these countries. Then there is the G20 foreign ministers meeting. This is on March 1st and 2nd, followed by the Ricina Dialogue, which is the MEA's own sort of conference, if you like, that is uh, run alongside uh, with ORF. And again, you will see at least 25 uh, foreign ministerial representatives and foreign ministers coming to Delhi for the G20 foreign ministers meeting. It's a big event. Uh, nobody's cutting India out in, in, in that sense. And you'll hear them speak as well at the Raisina Dialogue. A little later, we look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Foreign ministers meet in May, the SEO summit. So all these leaders will be here in June, the G20 summit in September. After which, in June and uh, July, there are talks going on about the possibility of Prime Minister Modi visiting the U.S. for a state visit. There is already an invitation. The dates are being worked out. Also this week, U.S. senior officials visiting India said officially and confirmed that there will be no sanctions against India when it comes to its relations with Russia. So we're, we're looking at a lot of engagement, a diplomatic calendar that's actually quite full. And therefore, very little to indicate that Western countries, at least officially, are at all trying to target India in any way or to isolate it. And yet there is this narrative. And yet there is the fact that this is taking so much of our diplomats' time. So I want to just segue a bit and talk about defensive diplomacy that you have been seeing uh, play out. 
how does defensive diplomacy really work? The first part of it is the public statements of the kind we've seen. And I, uh, we spoke about what the vice president said, what the EAM said, what the NEA spokesperson said, what Indian representative of the UN said as well, other embassies as well, will put out these public statements, putting, uh, uh, stating the record. We're also seeing uh, a lot of engaging of media in foreign countries. This comes from interviews given, press conferences held, editorials as well. The third kind of de defensive diplomacy one sees often is embassies lobbying with parliamentarians or in the U.S. context with congressmen to try and ensure that there is no criticism, no bills come out, no uh, negative references are made to India on the basis of these kind of uh, studies that we're seeing. Um, there is also uh, the possibility of hiring lobby firms. Just this week, it became clear that India has hired a lobby firm in Washington called Cornerstone. Uh, this was part of its regulatory filings in the U.S. So that's also a big part of defensive diplomacy. Uh, the next is a slightly offensive diplo defensive diplomacy, if you like, uh, which is to ban the visas of people visiting or of uh, a media organization visiting or even have deportations. And we have seen some of these in the last few years. India has refused visas, for example, for members of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedoms. Uh, on many occasions, um, and there are several other examples, then you can go a step further and have punitive actions, uh, legal action, like the sort we saw against the BBC, uh, in looking into their files, looking into their financial dealings. Also, visa cancellations of people who are already in India, uh, not being uh, allowed to stay on. Uh, apart from that, the government has actually also been banning over the last maybe decade or so, has been banning a number of foreign, mainly Western NGOs from working or funding projects in India in a number of specific fields where India feels targeted. So, for example, in human rights, uh, if you look at it, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have actually shut down India offices because they're not able to work over here and bring funds in. On climate change, Greenpeace has shut down. European Climate Foundation has had its fu uh, funding licenses put under restrictions. The issue of child labor is another where the government is extremely sensitive. And we've seen um, uh, various organizations like the Australian Walk Free Foundation, Mindaroo Foundation, UK-based Children's Investment Fund Foundation, the Freedom Fund, the Gatham Fund, and many others. And even on the issue of democracy itself, the US Congress funded National Endowment for Democracy for example, is also not allowed to fund research or um, fund operations in India. So clearly, defensive diplomacy against what are perceived as attacks on India has many levers for the government. And diplomats and India's uh, MEA top brass are well aware of them and use them often. However, India's international image as a secular, pluralistic, liberal democracy cannot be in engineered by diplomacy alone. Eventually, in the long term, perception cannot continue to be divorced from reality and vice versa. At some point, it will have to reflect what is reality and not be defensive about that. So let's get you some reading recommendations. And I have to say this week, it's a mixed bag of book recommendations. It may help you understand more broadly what uh, defensive diplomacy really is. Uh, one book that I really did enjoy is a quick read called Why Leaders Lie, The Truth About Lying in International Politics 
by John Mearsheimer. Now, of course, Mearsheimer has become very popular in India because he had uh, those videos of him talking about the truth behind Russia's uh, reasons for its invasion of the Ukraine. So he's a name that is now more well known. Uh, there's also another book on lobbying, very specifically called The Art of Political Persuasion. Uh, it's now in a paperback by Lionel Zetter. Then there is this old book that was actually recommended to me by a friend in, in, in the diplomacy world. It's called The Ambassadors, Thinking About Diplomacy from Machiavelli to Modern Times by Robert Cooper. And many see it as, as really a sort of uh, encyclopedia uh, to read through. Uh, and another one written in India called The Ultimate Goal, a former RNAW chief, deconstructs how nations and intelligence agencies construct narratives. This is by Vikram Sood, the former RAW chief. Uh, a new book out called Friends with Benefits, the India-US story by Seema Sirohi. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, it's a very, very good book on India-US ties. It has very minute details about the last few years, what happened. But it also gives you a very good idea of how one has to lobby, particularly when it comes to uh, the defensive diplomacy required in the face of a lot of questions and concerns about Indian democracy uh, and other issues. Uh, then there's a book called Indian Lobbying and its Influence in U.S. Decision-Making Post-Cold War, Cold War by Ashok Sharma. Now, this is a slightly older book. So it talks about how India dealt with the U.S. before 2014, really. Uh, and then this American book called The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. This is by Stephen Walt. Uh, again, a very, very interesting look at how the U.S. has allowed its interest in democracy building in the rest of the world, really, take over some of its foreign policy and has become a challenge. Of course, that is when the U.S. is being ideological and not tactical. Then there are a couple of books which you might find interesting, some on just democracies and also the messy diplomacy that needs to be done in order to defend democracy in, in various countries. And one of those that I recommend, which I read very recently, called The Anarchist Cookbook by Akar Patel. And it tells you very much about what are people's actual rights, how much can people protest, and how many freedoms actually are guaranteed by the Constitution. Then there is another book called A World Safe for Democracy. It's really the opposite, if you like, of Stephen Walt. Uh, but Liberal Internationalism and the Crises of Global Order by G. John Eikenberry, a professor who's written a really, really interesting course on, on if you like, democratic diplomacy in the world. And then I wanted to give you a few of, you know, books that make you see how difficult it is to be a diplomat. Uh, through some of their own diplomatic memoirs. So here are just a few of my favorite diplomatic memoirs. Uh, one, A Life in Diplomacy by Maharaj Krishna Raskotra. He's, you know, he's a legend really in many ways, very well known. And his memoirs look at how India worked through the very difficult era of the 60s and the 70s. Um, then the, uh, the book by Shashi Tharoor called Pax Indica, India and the World of the 21st Century. Shashi Tharoor, of course, a former diplomat with the United Nations and then India's Minister of State for External Affairs. Uh, another book, which of course does not need repeating, but we have spoken about it called The India Way, Strategies for an Uncertain World by the current External Affairs Minister, S.J. Shankar. Uh, I certainly hope you've got enough to read uh, for this week from the team here at Worldview. Thanks for watching.